Hey, hey, Joe. Hey, Ollie. How are you, buddy? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Um, you know, this this could be theoretically the first time that any podcast listener is listening to the two of us together. Now we have kind of a another episode. We'll get to know you. Little right, getting to right, know little you. Shorty in the front. Of our it, yeah. history. How in the hell is Oliver Hudson friends with Joe Buck and vice versa? So that's all there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we just finished an interview yes. with Bill Simmons, who is kind of the uh, the king of the podcast uh, internet. He's got the, the pod ringer. father, the pod the father. Pod father. He's he's got uh, that's right. You know, long time at ESPN. He's kind of made his own empire, and he's a guy that, frankly, back I don't know ten twelve years ago, hated me. He hated me, and yet well, you here know, he is the first guest. Yeah fascinating to hear you guys uh go back and forth it was really honestly fun for me i'm a big sports fan obviously and uh the first half of the interview i was like a i was uh, i was just a, an audience member i was a fan listening to you guys with your vast sports knowledge go back and forth between the various sports and various games and the and the intricacies and the, the specifics of these games, it was uh, it was like watching two encyclopedias talk. Well, Super Britannicas. <laughs> well, here's the thing: he remembers <laughs> a lot of that stuff way better than I do because we're talking when mm-hmm. we talk with Bill about a lot of New England stuff, whether it's the Patriots or the Red Sox or whatever. But the, these are things that are indelibly printed in his mind because. He's a fan of Boston sports. I just, you know, I've called a lot of Boston sports nationally on Fox, and so uh, that that is where his dislike mm-hmm. for me started because when you do the national broadcast, you have to kind of tell all the backstory right. and the history and Bill Buckner, and it's been 86 years, and, well, and Boston gave, fans are sick of that. I know, but he gave such a great insight uh, into why people might dislike you, okay? One that I've never heard before, and I don't want to reveal it in this lead-up because I think just listen to it but in the show, but uh, it was very informative for me um, when he sort of explained why. In, what was it, 04? Yeah. He, he was like, oh, he just did not like you. Um, 03 and great, 04. It, because 03 and 04 is, it was is a great the Red Sox, Yeah, the Red Sox had a lead. Yeah. And then yeah. they blew yeah. it, and then they were getting trounced by the Yankees in 04, and then they came back. And so yeah, that's all history. Yeah. But but now we've kind of come full circle. I don't know Bill that well. I got to know him on the podcast, which I think is going to be the fun part for you and me, and that is mm-hmm. we're going to get to know people through this process that, that even yeah. though I've been around Bill, I didn't know – 80% of what we just covered no, with him about his I know. life. And it was fun to talk to him about his his father, you know, what he meant to him. Uh, there's an amazing article he wrote for ESPN Magazine, his last article he wrote for ESPN Magazine about his dad, which is very emotional and just beautifully written. Um, you know, he's a big influence in his life. He seems to be a great father himself. You know, just an all-around great dude, really comfortable with who he is, super authentic. Do you think that he... When you when he hung up with us, do you think that he thought, "Oh, those guys did pretty good"? I think what I learned on that podcast 
It's more about uh, us right now. Is, so is I'm going to put it into practice right now. I don't care what he thought about us when he hung up. <laughs> You're such a liar. I don't care. <laughs> I am comfortable okay. in the job that we did. I am comfortable yeah. in the give and take, the back and forth, that if he didn't like it, so be it. I liked it. I Yes. And you know what? That's, a, even, that's how Bill operates. If that's you don't like Bill it, operates. fuck off. Right. And so I'm going to operate along those lines. It, 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 Bill, if you didn't like it, fuck off, baby. Right. Enjoy Bill Simmons. How you doing, man? How you doing in the times of uh, the Q, the QT, the quarantine? Um, it's, it's been really weird. My my actual professional stuff hasn't changed that much because we're still like doing a bunch of podcasts. We're just doing a lot of them on Zoom and things like that, and doing a lot of virtual stuff. But it's just weird not to go in the office and and see people. And and I've I've seen the same three people in my life for the last two and a half weeks. <laughs> who are who seen, are they? <laughs> my two kids and my wife, and that's it. Uh, the FedEx guy came by yesterday. That was super exciting. I stayed eight feet away from him. <laughs> Um, <laughs> do you do you wipe the boxes off? Oh yeah, I I picked up the boxes with uh, paper towels and just you know it, it, these are just crazy times. I I almost feel like this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Like this is some alternate universe we've entered where I'm just afraid of everyone at all times, which is the complete opposite of how I used to be. I did a I did a book tour I think in 2009. And we would have like hundreds and hundreds of people at these things. I would shake hands with people. I would never even think to like wash my hands. Oh, I should bring Purell. I was just never that kind of person. And now I feel like I'm going to be terrified of everyone for the rest of my life. Yeah, I feel like that's true. I feel like this is changing the landscape of 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 what it's what it is to be sort of sanitary. I, I I'm a non germ guy through and through. Like I eat shit off the floor. There is no five second rule. It's like a five minute rule for me and my kids. The same thing. But now I feel like I am going to be washing my hands every time I see someone shake a hand in a movie. Now I, I get weird about it. That's been weird, just watching movies and seeing how they're interacting in the movie and thinking, even when you see like people passing a bong in outside Providence or something, like, oh, there's a lot of germs in that bong. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's changed everything. It's, it's bizarre. Hey, Bill, Bill, we, we call this thing daddy issues. You're our first guest for two reasons. One, you're kind of the, somebody's described you as the pod father. You're like the podcast king of all, not the Tiger King, but the podcast king of of our lifetime. I, I've never called myself that. But, but let others do yeah, it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and we call it daddy's, but here's the other reason. We wanted to have Vetter on and you just had him, you fucker. Yeah. <laughs> How was that, by the way? You know, I was supposed to go to Seattle and do it with him and Jeff Ament and- the Corona thing changed everything and we ended up having to do it. Three people, three locations on the phone, no zoom, couldn't see anybody. So the ceiling just automatically lowers. It's really hard to do a pod when it's three people and nobody could see each other. And you're basically doing these little cues, which Joe knows as a, as a long time established accomplished host where you're, you're basically cueing the person to talk where you're like, bah, 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 bah. isn't that right, Joe? Yeah. And we went for like two and a half hours. And by the second half of it, they kind of figured out how to do it. 
So the second half was really good. And Eddie's like lighting up spirits during it. Of course. As for a beer at one point, I tried to wrap it up a couple of times and uh, (laughs) and he just wanted to keep going. But the funniest thing he said was basically that when the when the Jordan, he was a huge Jordan Bulls guy. And then when that the Jordan thing ended, he basically just quit basketball. He He retired with Jordan. And that was it. He was done with basketball. And I think he's kind of like that now with the Cubs, too, where they won the title. And he feels like that was it. I've I've climbed. Are you there at all with the Red Sox? I mean, and I look back during this whole quarantine time and I go back and I watch some of the old stuff. And And sometimes you can't even miss it. It's it's coming across MLB Network or somebody sends you an email or somebody tweets something at you. And you go back and you watch that and you go, man, it just had such a different feel than it does now. And I didn't grow up, obviously, like you did. We are the basically the same age. But you grew up as a longtime Boston fan, Red Sox, all the heartbreak, and then they win, and then they win again, and then they win again, and then they win again. And I look back at 04, and I go, God, it just feels like an entirely different lifetime in the sport of baseball. Do you feel that way? Oliver, so you know I really hated Joe in 03, 04. Yeah. But I hated all these people that, the Red Sox fans were like, <laughs> "Why did hold on? This, wait, 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 why did you hate Joe? Because this has been a co- gonna, a topic of conversation with Joe and I forever and ever. Why everyone hates? No, no, Joe th- this is different. Okay, this is different. He, the Red Sox, he was just one of the many people who did this, and I don't blame him for it because you're a host, you're hosting a game, you're trying to make it appealing to all the different audiences. The Red Sox were basically baseball lepers. And anytime anything good was happening for us in any way, shape, or form, it was like the Fox producers would be like, hey, the Red Sox fans are feeling good right now. They have a two-run lead. Let's run the Buckner montage. <laughs> and and it, was, it was over and over again. Anytime you're feeling good about anything, it was a kick in the balls yeah. over and over again. Even... Even when Game 7, Yankee Stadium, we're up by like seven runs. And Joe's like, I know they're up by seven runs, but when you think about the history of these two teams, and we're like, shut up, Joe. Let us enjoy this. That's so fair. But he That's was, so fair. He was doing his job. But you, even if you watch, if you watch that last inning, I think, of Game 7 in, in Yankee Stadium, they couldn't resist. They ran the Boone homer again. Yeah. And they were like, hey, just... Just don't ever feel safe. So by the time we actually won, it felt like we had escaped a a, a prison in, in Vietnam in like 1974 or something. Like we were escaping with Chuck Norris getting to safety. And that was the best thing. So to answer your question, Joe, the best thing about winning was just not having to think about the 86 years anymore and not having that stuff thrown in our face and Bucky Dent and Ed Armbrister and Aaron Boone and all these terrible things that had happened over the years, they just kind of vanished. So anything after that was gravy. I get, I get it. My, um, my in-laws are all from Boston, all of them. So my wife is from Boston. Everyone, we go to the Cape every year, and they're obviously diehard sports fans. The Lakers, when the Boston, when I'm a Lakers fan. I know you hate the Lakers, but when the Boston, when the Celtics beat the Lakers, I show up for the summer, you know, and uh, Brooks. Brooks Bartlett, her dad, shows up to pick me up from the airport in a full Celtics uniform. And the guy's like 68 years old. Full head to toe, shoes, shorts. You know, it was <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> there is something different about the Red Sox fan 
or the Celtics fan or the Bruins fan. There, there's a. I live in St. Louis, and they're all oh, the nicest fans, the nicest fans in the in the in the big leagues. And and I think to some degree, that's really accurate. And and I go up to the Northeast, and I've been involved in some of these Yankee Red Sox battles, and and there's an edge to it that was there during those years that I I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I'm desensitized, but I don't feel like that's there anymore. Do you? Do you feel that way, or am I am no. I missing that? No, because when I was I'm we're the same age. When I was growing up, they won the one game playoff against us in '78, and that was like one of the most traumatic events of my life. And then you go through the '80s; they're not really playing each other. They don't. They're peaking at different times. The '90s happen. All of a sudden, when that Yankee dynasty started again, that's when the Red Sox got good again, too. And now we're going head-to-head again. But they're they're beating us. And it's at the point where we're we're not even like the little brother in the relationship. We're we're just the, the tiny guy at the bar who's getting the crap kicked out of us every night. And we have no chance. And they're so arrogant. So you go to the 03 when we blew the lead and Grady Little and all that stuff and the Boone thing hits. I was so upset. I was working for Jimmy Kimmel's show at the time and I stayed up really late that night. I wrote a piece about how upset I was basically and then the next day went to work and I actually asked to leave at like 2.30. I was so, so upset. I I couldn't work. (laughs) I had to like just go home and like and take the dogs for like a two-hour walk and just kind of think about why do I care this much? You know, at that point I'm in my mid thirties. It's like, why do I care this much? I I was just going to ask that question. Actually. Um, where do you think that comes from? The fanaticism of sports, you know how you, you especially just live and die with, with your teams. Right. Where, why do you think that these fanatics, uh, you know, assume the identity of their teams? What does that come from? You know what I mean? Where you literally live and die with your team. Like what is that? I think part of it part of it is the cold weather thing. I think the cold weather cities you look at Philly and New York and Chicago mm-hmm. and these places where the weather just sucks for 4 or 5 months a year and sports just takes on a greater importance. Like give you like I moved to LA in 2002 and they they really care about the Lakers and the Dodgers specifically and the college stuff to lesser degree. But there's also way more things to do here and the weather's nicer and it's just more pleasant here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the the St. Louis people, the people in the Midwest, you know, the weather is not fantastic there either, but they're just nicer people. Mm-hmm. East Coasters, cold weather, we're kind of in each other's face all the time. We're up and down, more passionate just about everything for better and worse. And I think the sports ties into that. But the weird thing with the Red Sox and all the Boston stuff was things really flipped this century and we kind of became America's villain, which we went from being like the same way people would see the Browns fans now. And like, that's what the Patriots were like when I, the Patriots were basically the Browns for the mm-hmm. first 30 plus years of my life. The Red Sox were the, the baseball team that was the, the Red Sox and the Cubs were the two sad sacks. So the reason like somebody like Joe, Joe was like the doctor who was delivering bad news to me about my family member for years in a row. I just saw his face. I'm like, I, I just associate him with 
bad things. I get it. And it's not and it's not Joe's fault at all. But he knew he knew it, but it wasn't your fault. No, and, and I know, and that's what I get from every fucking fan base out there. So not only am I in your specific case attached to all this you know, angst and at times failure and it didn't change until 04. But I'm also screaming for the team that just won it. So it's it's almost yeah. double. And not only you have to see my face and my gigantic head, but you have to listen to me get excited, which you don't all year. So you're watching Nesson or you're watching in New York, you're watching Yes or whatever. And it's all it's state run TV. It's, you know, we're the best. We're the best. Yay. We just hit a home run. Boo. The other team just hit a home run. And then I show up when you care the most. And I'm not only did you lose, but I'm screaming and yelling because another team just beat you. It's only natural. I, I, but that's just kind of the life that I have to, it's either that or don't do it. I mean, there's just no, well, there's no way around the fan. The fans are also irrational though. Like one of my best friends in, in the world, John O'Connell, my friend Jacko, huge Yankee fan. He's been on my podcast a bunch of times. He's honestly, genuinely convinced that John Smoltz hates the Yankees. <laughs> and when he watches Yankee playoff games, every time Smoltz says anything, it's like, oh, you can you can hear it in his voice. <laughs> He's just happier when it's going badly for the Yankees. I can tell. And it, this is a normal person with two kids and a job and really genuinely feels that way. I, so I don't even so know how you stop Before that. we get to you, and that's the main part, that's the reason why we wanted you on, I'm just going to reveal something on my own new podcast, you being our first guest. Here's how I think. Yankees, when they're good, everybody's happy. Red Sox, when they're good, everybody at Fox, therefore I, we're all happy. Cubs, same thing. Dodgers, same thing. These are all fan bases that think I don't root for them or hate them or I root against them. I would be literally cutting off my own paycheck, in essence, or the happiness with my network if I rooted against these teams. Now, when the Red Sox and Yankees play, I don't care who wins. I I didn't grow up in that, so I get excited for a big play. That's it. But the big market teams... Those are the ones that, at the end of the day, you want in the biggest games. And and so, if anything, I'm more leaning toward the Red Sox at times or toward the Yankees, depending on who they're playing. When they play each other, I don't give a shit. So that's kind of how But are you com- are you complicit in the Astros cheating because you did hear the banging from up in the booth? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I was aware. Joe, Joe knew about it. Joe buried some shit. <laughs> Joe, bar- oh, Joe buried some shit for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know the Fox people knew about it. They had to. Our the audio guy, so when this thing broke, I did not. I swear to God on my children's lives, I did not know. But our audio guy was like, we knew something was going on because we we've got microphones everywhere. So this there's a guy at a at a mixing table, in essence, in the in the truck that has microphones in the bases, in the dugout, in the booth, in the outfield wall. That they hear all that stuff. He's like, oh yeah, we you know we heard that banging going on all the time. So they, I think if he was aware. I think a lot of people were aware, and and it just broke. It became public, and if the Astros are doing it, I am really hard pressed to believe other teams and other organizations that all think they're smarter than every other team out there. All twenty nine other teams aren't doing some version of that. I don't know what it is, but some version of that is happening in every organization. I'm convinced. I, I just don't see how that's with player movement 
and somebody being in the bullpen for the Astros one day and getting cut, and the next day they're with the Rangers, and they, they, they don't know that's going on with their own hitters, and they don't tell their own pitchers that that's going on, that's, that's, that's absurd. That, there's no way that, that everybody in the game is not doing something like that. Do you agree with that, Bill? Well, and I, think, I think that's why they, like they didn't vacate the title and any of that stuff. Because like really what they should have done is what the NCAA does where they're like, look, it happened. We're not changing who won it, but we're just, we're not recognizing that title anymore. I think so many people were doing so many different things related to sign stealing that they, they couldn't single the ass. The Astros were just the most blatant and stupidest, but I'm sure all these teams are. And I, I think the same thing in football, you watch the coaches and they're cut, they're calling in plays and they're, they're covering their face with the, with the play chart. It's because people are stealing signs from them, which is technically you're not allowed to do, but everybody does it. So I don't know where you draw the line. I just think the Astros were the stupidest version of it. Yeah, I I don't Mm -hmm. disagree with that. I I really want to talk about about you specifically, Bill, because I I know you've been what? Yeah, no, no. I just want to talk about that generate the 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 fanaticism real quick. And if you think that's a generational thing, I mean, do you think that you know that comes from your father or even your mother? You know, where did you where you grew up watching these sports and, and trying to emulate your father? You know what I mean? Well, our gener. How old are you, Ollie? I'm 43. Yeah, you're tiny bit younger than Joe yeah. and I. Our generation, we just had less to do. Mm-hmm. So when I was like you know, 76 to 80, really getting into stuff. We had the three cable channels. I don't think we had video games yet. We had no internet. Uh, We didn't have on-demand VCRs, any of that stuff. So sports was a huge thing. So like the 76 Olympics, that was two and a half weeks of like stuff to watch. And I I watched everything. And, And I think... I think our generation just watched more of that stuff. I look at the generation. My kids are 14 and 12, and they just have so many more entertainment options. Mm-hmm. My son, will, he'll watch like the big Pats games with me, but he's seen more of the Pats just from like YouTube mm-hmm. and from and from like uh, the greatest play montages. Are and your stuff kids like big that. sports fans? Not, not like that. No, I mean they know what's going on, but he knows he knows most of the guys from the video games, right? You know, from from Two K and from the show and yeah. from Madden. So he knows all the guys from that. But yesterday, my son and I were watching the Pats Falcons uh, Super Bowl that Joe was uh, lucky enough to call. That's right? <laughs> Did and, you think I was rooting against your fucking and, team then? No, you know what you were doing? You were you were bowing to the altar of the great one, Tom Brady, which that was like his ultimate. Even after he's getting, at the end, he's getting congratulated and people are coming up to him like he's the Dalai Lama or something. Yeah. The way people are hugging him and, and uh, that game was, I still think that's the most incredible football game I've ever seen. Mm. I cannot believe they won that game. And when you rewatch it, all the different ways Amazing. the Falcons could have won. There's like 15 plays where if the Falcons just do the right thing on one play, they win the how game. About if they, and they go how about 15. after they they complete that ball to Julio Jones? They could have literally taken a knee. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, I, nobody's going to do goal. that. But they could have taken a knee almost the rest of the game if they make a field goal at the end after that Julio Jones. There's no way 
there's not enough time left for New England to come back and tie it. But once they got what what Troy and I think we're proud of in that game as announcers of being there is we didn't quit on it, and I th- I think we didn't quit on it because it was Brady. If it was anybody else you would have just tapped out and you start talking about everything else and then all of a sudden you get surprised because now it's a one-score game. But it was Brady. It was like, well, you never know. I mean, it is Brady. And then stuff started just rolling. And there are, as you said, I mean, there's like literally 10 things that if those 10 things don't happen the way they happen and it goes any one of those 10 goes the other way, they don't have time to come back and tie the game. It just was amazing that that happened in the Super Bowl. It's very similar to Game 6, 86. Even though that was more condensed with all the ways the Red Sox blew that game, it has the same elements of I it, it just the staggering amount of plays that if one one of them swings the other way, the the Patriots lose, the Mets lose. And that's it. Yep. Um, I think it's it's the greatest collapse in a sporting event. I think that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's it's impossible to lose that game mm-hmm. if you played it a hundred times. I, I don't think the Falcons maybe win ninety eight. There's them. three. So when you talk about, oh god, no, I was just gonna say there's three games that I've done personally that fall into that category. That that Patriots Super Bowl. The NFC Championship game with the Packers and the Seahawks. Oh, Seahawks. Yeah. That's yeah. another yeah. one where it's like. Literally, pestilence uh, and locusts were the only things missing from the collapse and how this how the Seahawks ended up going to the Super Bowl. That that was another, I mean, just run of things that happened that that just doomed Green Bay. That if any one of the things went the other way, right? Uh, and then the the Cardinal fans still talk about 2011 Game Six and the Cardinals being down literally oh, yeah. to their last strike twice and tying it in the ninth tying it in the 10th winning it in the 11th and Cruz and right not being deep enough I mean just little thing that's the beauty that's the beauty of sports and and why I think analytics works to a certain degree but then it's up to you know who's going to get a break who's going to get something that goes against the analytics who's going to play too shallow and right who's not going to catch an onside kick that goes right to his chest you know these are things that that numbers and mathematicians cannot account for in sports well what is what is baseball managers these days right are they actually managing the team from the bench or are they managing it from upstairs these days i mean is there any feel to the sport anymore in baseball or is it all math math i think most of the issues right now with managers in front offices are usually the front office overpowering the manager with information and the uh the gut feeling aspect of it kind of going away which makes sense and also doesn't make sense because sometimes things defy imagination. I think, you know, sometimes you got to wonder if things are predetermined and shit like that. Like to me, the in 2016 game seven, the, the rain delay, mm. the timing of it where the Cubs had just blown it. And in any, in any other scenario, they just lose the game. It's going to happen. They're going to lose. And this rain delay pops out of nowhere and kind of resets the game, and then uh, and then they end up winning it. But just the fact that it rained then, out of all the times it could have rained, and that they, just when they needed the life raft the most, I think about that. I think about like a game Joe did game game four. I think it was game five. Uh, Red Sox Yankees. Tony Clark hits this this seed down the right field line. And it bounces over the fence, and it's a ground rule double. It keeps the runners at second and third. And it's like I watch—I've been watching Red Sox games my entire life. 
the odds of that ball, the way he hit it, actually just skipping and going over the fence versus hitting the fence, it's like one in 20. And stuff like that happens, and you're like, oh, maybe we were destined to win this. So do you, I don't know. Do you Sports believe in that you think stuff? Of this stuff? Are, you, are you superstitious? You're like a superstitious person. In 04, I wore the same uh, Red Sox t-shirt every day for like, I think, three weeks. <laughs> so Or 03, one of those years. Yeah, so I, I have like seating positions. The Falcons, Pat, Super Bowl. We were watching at home. We all switched seats at halftime. We stayed in the seats. I totally believe in all that stuff. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. But, but hey, it's like blaming the announcer if they mention a no-hitter, and then the no-hitter goes away. Some of that stuff is, is just crazy, but it adds to the fun of it, and it makes you feel involved. If you feel like, hey, if I sit in the lazy boy for the next 10 minutes and they score two touchdowns, I'm not getting out of the lazy boy. And you feel mm-hmm. like you're a part of the whole process, which is just kind of silly. Joe, Joe, you've ruined a lot of no hitters. Let's be no, honest. I have intentionally. <laughs> you've, you've intentionally, you've, you've intentionally jinxed about 20 of them. I think I, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever called talk- a no hitter. So maybe you're right. We talked about this before, but I, I never fully understood what Joe's life was like until I was doing NBA countdown for ABC and ESPN during the 2013 finals. And it was Miami, San Antonio and both fan bases thought I hated them. Right. And it was like, so I'm, I'm rooting for basically a nuclear right. war. What am I rooting? So I'm, I'm not rooting for Miami because I hate them, and I also hate San Antonio. So w- there's no other side. I, I can't be did, on a did side. Did that at this bother point. you at all? Did it affect? Yeah. Did it, okay, good. Did it affect what you said going forward once you were aware of that? No. It. I was more. I was more amused by it because I. Because honestly, I didn't care who won. You know, I. I. I remember during Game Six, the Ray Allen shot. We had been on the road for two weeks, and I remember with like a minute left hoping San Antonio would win because I would get to go home and see my kids. But, you know, it wasn't like I was on the air rooting for that, but I do remember having that feeling like, oh, I hope San Antonio wins. I'm just dying to go home. (laughs) We just talked about that, Joe. I I, I forget what you were calling. I think it was was the World Series, this last World Series, and we were on the phone, and, you know, and he, he said the same shit. He's like, I, I just end this thing. I want to go home. I want to right. go see my family. I just want to go home. That's I, yeah. I remember, yeah, at the end of a long month and, you know, whatever. It's impossible to take your personal feelings out of it uh, along those lines. But it doesn't bother you, Bill, if, if you're sitting in a, in a, you know, you guys do some of those on the location sets. If somebody's out there riding your ass like, fuck you, Simmons. Fuck you, hate the Spurs. Fuck you. That, that stuff you giggle at that or I've always found the, that if you just engage with the people and I remember this in San Antonio, I, I, we kind of won over the San Antonio people around us during those two finals. We're just engaging with them and having fun with it versus kind of glancing over nervously or whatever. Like I, I think when you engage with, the people it makes that stuff a lot easier yeah that's what i try to tell i I try to tell joe you know because he gets super insecure about it you know and i'm just like joseph lean into it we literally had this conversation yesterday his wife michelle was like don't talk about this hating joe all the time it's bad energy and i'm like you gotta lean into that stuff that's that could be your calling card like fucking go go with it don't rail against well that was that was Joe, like, I'm, I'm going to say like four or five years ago, made a really smart career move, just 
talking honestly and openly about all this stuff, about what it's like to be the America's announcer for these different things. And it you you kind of swayed the internet back on your side. It was interesting to watch. Now I think, I feel like people love Joe now. I definitely don't feel like that was the case in the mid-2000s. And there was definitely a Summerall hangover. People loved Madden and Summerall. That took a while to, they any other football crew they weren't going to totally accept. But now... I think there's like a real appreciation. It especially helps. I won't mention uh, other telecasts that maybe haven't worked as well, like um, Monday Night Football. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but uh, but when when the broadcast teams don't work, I think it makes people really appreciate like Joe and Troy and Al and Chris and 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 Nance and Romo, especially lately, because mm-hmm. Nance and Sims had a really rough last couple years, and now Nance and Romo, and all of a sudden people are like. Oh, Jim Nance is great. It's like Jim Nance has the same. always been great. Yeah. Like he, he he didn't just get better at age sixty two. Like he's been good the whole time. No, you're 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 bringing up a lot of stuff that you know I could talk to you for days, and we won't we won't keep you uh, <laughs> we won't keep you for one full day. I could, um, but I want to talk about I want to talk about you because I feel like what has been so appealing about you is you've been willing, Bill, to open yourself up and be literally like an open book. And, and I, I, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if that was a conscious decision. I don't know. I, I just feel like you are as honest about yourself and who you are in your writing, in your television appearances, whether it's back at ESPN or for the time at HBO or what you do anywhere. I feel like you're kind of what you see is what you get. And I, and I think I've taken some of that, on myself i think i've learned uh, from you in that way uh, do, was that a decision you made or is that is that just the way the only way you know how to be i think uh i probably two things one is i think you have to be authentic especially in in the in the social media internet era or people see right through it and if you're not honest about things you've done that have either worked or not worked um it just rings hollow, and if you don't stay true to what you actually are like, people are people are going to notice. Um, and then the other thing is just like I, I've just never been afraid to fuck up mm. and or to have some sort of failure. You know, like the HBO show, both of the HBO shows we did, neither of them worked. I, it's okay. Like I guarantee you learned a bunch of stuff from the experience you had. I know I learned a bunch of experience from mine, but my my instinct has always been do it versus talk yourself out of doing it. Like even ending up on countdown when I did, that was, I look back at that. That was kind of crazy. I'd been on TV like 20 times and did not have the reps really at all. We didn't have a host. And I was like, fuck it. I know the NBA. I can do this. And it probably took like five, six months to get really where I kind of needed to be on that show. But it was like, I'm really glad I tried. So um, my, my feeling has always been, Go for it versus talk yourself out of it. And if the worst thing that happens, it doesn't work, then take the lessons that you got from it and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any regret? Do you have any regrets about being as authentic and open and honest, you know, as 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 you are? You're like, fuck it, no regrets. This is just who I am. I have regrets from stuff I wrote in the '90s and the 2000s where. Um, I look back and I, I think it was almost too harsh and 
you know, and I think part of that was just the product of what the internet was like back then. It was still kind of forming into what it was. And, you know, my attitude back then was like, I'm going to say exactly what I think about all this stuff. And I think what I failed to realize probably until the, the mid late two thousands is once, once you have a platform that's a certain size, you, you can't just, you can't just be winging it and throwing grenades and taking shots left and right. Even, even if sometimes you want to, because you know, a lot of people are reading it. Some of that stuff can be hurtful. So I look back at some of the stuff I've written. I was like, man, I, I can't believe I wrote that. I shouldn't have written that. I should have thought about, you know, what the other person is like, but you know, sometimes you don't realize that stuff until you hit a level um, for yourself where, where people are lobbing grenades at you. And now, you know, now you're on the other side of it. Now you know what that feels like. And it kind of makes you realize like, uh, all right, what's, what's worth it and not, and not worth it about how honest you want to be about something. Well, what's mm-hmm. a criticism of you that gets under your skin? What's a criticism of you that, that you may think is valid that, that you get a lot that you've worked on regarding your own presentation or your own writing or whatever it may be. I'm going to flip that question around. The thing you realize is, and at some point in your career, if you're successful, you're just going to realize it is that everybody gets picked apart. You know, there's not, nobody has a 100% approval rating that has an audience of a certain size, you know, and what, what you do with that information you can either double down on the stuff you're doing and say, fuck it, half the people are going to be against me. And I think we've seen some people, especially in sports media, who have operated that way. Um, you could take some of it to heart. Um, you could try to to whittle away some of the uh, stickier stuff. Or, um, you know, I, I think ultimately a lot of times criticism makes people better. It makes you more resilient and it makes you realize the stuff you're doing that isn't working. And I think sometimes... Um, you know, I think you see it, especially with older people who are really successful, who are just kind of like, "Hey, man, this I'm going to dance with what brought me," and say so you can't really do that. Um, but for I for criticisms that I think most more recent ones, um, you know, I, I don't write anymore. So when somebody brings that up, like it, 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 it first of all, it hits close to home because I'm a writer and I was that's how I became anything. And I just feel like I've kind of said everything I had to say from a writing standpoint. So when people bring up like, well, you're not a writer, you you don't write anymore, you're retired. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, that's kind of true. Like, mm-hmm. So that one, that one hurts because I still feel like I'm going to write again. But I, now the years are passing. And I'm like, ah, oh, I haven't written anything in three years. Well, speaking so of- by the way, I read, uh, I, read the, um, I read the piece that you did on your dad last night, which was awesome by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank that you. was really, uh, emotional. It was just awesome, you know? Um, and you know, I, I wish I could write something like that about my dad, but I don't really know him. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> way to bring but it down. Your, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Uh, uh, but was your dad a big influence, uh, in your life? I mean, even as a kid growing oh, yeah. up, yeah, he was the man you, even after the divorce, like, how did that work out, by the way? You know what I mean? Like, were you on and off between mom and dad? Yeah. So when my parents got divorced, it was probably the worst possible time. I was nine. Uh-huh. So you're, like, just smart enough to know what's going on, but dumb enough to think, like, it was all your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and they got divorced. It was I had this stretch where the Red Sox lost the one-game playoff to the Yankees. 
my parents separated and then the Bruins lost the too many men in the ice game to the Canadians. And I, I was like a wreck after that. Uh, then Larry Bird <laughs> showed up and it was fine. But um, the, I'm not, yeah, not I mean, going to ask you to rank uh, which one hurt the most. Oh, the, the one game playoff okay. is number one. That was because we, we blew a 14 and a half game lead over the last 10 weeks of the season. And that culminating in clawing back to get this one game playoff and then the whole thing. But uh but with my dad, he he used to carry me into the Boston Garden until I was ten. We had one season ticket and then eventually he got a second one. But um I was able to go to just some incredible Celtic all pretty much all the vintage bird era games and Wow. I think that's why that's why I like sports because of all those experiences. Yeah, yeah, your dad is your dad is the one who sort of I'm sure introduced you to all to that entire world, right? I mean, yeah, because we're watching Pats on Sunday, we're watching Red Sox every day, and you know there was a lot less going on. It's funny, my dad, I think they have a Celtic season ticket list of who's had him the longest who still is actually going versus people who pass him down he's like seventh on the list now for the celtics oh my god seventh wow seventh longest celtics season ticket holder but when he got him he was like 25 and he had and he got one ticket and it was the first year he got tickets they won the title so um so yeah so i think when you have something like that happen um there's no way you're not gonna love sports i'm sure the same thing with joe like his dad's calling the games like I, I you know when you're a little kid you get swept up in that and there's no going back yeah, yeah. no I, I we we talked about that you know uh well joe wrote about it you know obviously in his book but you know similar i mean i'm i'm in the movie television business i don't really know anything else i grew up on sets with my parents that's where i was from the age of infant till you know now i don't know what else i would i would do you know we're pretty much a product of of our parents at, to some extent, you know, unless we're railing against them. Do your kids want to get into what you do? No, but my daughter really wants to, um, my daughter, I've had her on a podcast a bunch of times and she's really good at like teen culture stuff. She's just good at it. And I don't really have an explanation for it. Yeah. And she always jokes about wanting to have do it when she gets older. But you know, my whole thing is like 10 years from now, who the, who the fuck knows what's going to, like maybe podcasts are out and we're on to whatever the next thing is. You think about how fast everything moves. Like when, like when we created Grantland in 2011, we created the site for people on their desktop and right after the site launch, the iPad came out and then the iPhones really took off a year later and now everybody's reading stuff on their phones. Now you think 2020, everyone reads everything on their phones. Nobody really reads on a computer anymore. Uh, I don't know how things are going to evolve over the next 10 years from a media standpoint. I think what's been really fascinating about this Corona thing um, is how it's kind of changed our habits on the fly with certain things. And I know things will go back to normal in some ways, but in other ways, no. And we, we were talking on my podcast last week with sports media. Um, the, as it turns out, you can kind of just have shows, even if the people aren't on the fancy set together. And you could do split screen stuff and you can get creative and you can think outside the box. And I, I do think there's going to be lessons when all this settles down, thank God, um, for how they do shows going forward. Maybe four people don't need to be together all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe like a show like Kimmel's show, 
he can do like more FaceTime stuff with guests for four minutes. I, oh, I, dude, I think totally. on the table. I, I agree, man. I mean, you even look at all these live things that are happening right now, these live DJ sessions, which are amazing, you know, um, and how we are adapting to the new, you know, which... Well, look at even Stern. I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. You know, he is yeah. he is still doing his show from his house. It's totally shitty. You know, it goes in and out with sound. But there's something almost nice about it in a strange way. You know, I he 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 I, I like the authenticity of him even being at his at his house. You know, so I think you're right. You know, it's interesting too. Just on a on another level, um, we were you were talking earlier just sort of about the coronavirus in general. And how weird it feels or how weird it is, right? I was talking to my kids yesterday, and we are so adaptable as a species. You know, it is weird. But at the same time, two weeks in, three weeks in, there is a normalcy that we are all sort of, you know, adapting to. It's I'm not afraid on the day to day. You know, it's like, okay, this is just what we have to do. This is just who we have to be now. And... uh it's it's uh it's 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 an, an interesting time you know for that and how to move forward especially in the entertainment business well the entertainment business i think you know there's a lot of stuff that's going to have trouble coming back and i think just the production schedule of shows and movies like i had two different documentary projects that are basically pause buttoned right now mm-hmm. um there's there's some stuff that's going to take a while to come back and even like you think about sports and i i've been I'm like a generally glass half full kind of person thinking about, all right, if we can get through this, this is going to be an unbelievable six months of sports from July on mm-hmm. where we'll have a condensed baseball schedule of we'll football, we'll have basketball playoffs and four majors and all these things. But at the same time, like um, it's going to be a lot of content at once. And from a crowd standpoint, I don't know how many people are even going to want to be going like let's say the the play the NBA comes back in July, am I going to want to sit in the stands at that point? Even if they're telling me it's fine, mm-hmm. am I going to want to do that? So I think things will get back to normal, but uh, the arc of it, I think, will probably be a little more haphazard than maybe maybe we think. Yeah, yeah. I I think. Well, first of all, I mean, we can go in a lot of different directions. I'm I, I agree with you. I, I I'm starting to think, Bill, that we're going to have a di- more, much more difficult time getting back to normal in professional sports. I think baseball is in a lot of trouble this season because I don't think it's realistic. It comes back before July, but if it comes back, you're still going to need a month long. It's not like basketball where these guys can basically stay in shape and get back out there after a couple practices. Baseball, you need a few weeks, especially with the pitchers and the timing and all that stuff. So now you're talking, let's say best case scenario, it's July 1st, but it's not really July 1st. It would be like July 20th, July 21st, where they're actually playing. So now you're talking about like a 70 game season and playoffs. You can't really take the baseball playoffs into November. So I I would say out of all the ones that are in trouble. I think baseball is actually number one. Basketball, they can figure out some sort of playoff, six-week playoff thing in July, August. Football, you know football's happening. Yeah. They're they're plowing ahead no matter what the obstacles are. Uh, Even you saw it this week, Goodell's like, yeah, we're still having the draft. It's happening April 23rd and 25th. All these teams are saying, we'd kind of like to interview the players that we might have to be drafting. He's like, we're doing it. 
I think football will plow ahead and I think college football will too. But baseball is the one that I, I really can't wrap my head around how they would actually do it. Now, I'm hoping it happens because I, I think we're going to learn some stuff about things we thought about the different sports. Like with baseball, maybe it should be a 120-game season with longer playoffs. And maybe we'll really like how the regular season turns out. Maybe we'll like a shorter basketball season. Maybe we'll like if the basketball playoffs are July and August and you know the finals are the last two weeks of August. Maybe that makes more sense. They don't have to go against football at all. So I do think we're going to learn some stuff. But, um, but for fans actually going back to the games and wanting to be in crowds, I think that's going to take more time than people are giving it credit for. So we call this podcast daddy issues and and I know I'm jumping tracks here but I do I do want to get back yeah. to this. Um and it this you're our first guest so you're the guinea pig. Um but we yeah. do because Oliver is following his mom and in some ways his sister uh his brother his stepdad whatever. I'm I'm following my dad into this business but I, I in that article that Oliver just referenced about you and your last column that you wrote for ESPN, the magazine is, as you were making your exit and your dad was exiting his 33 year career as a school superintendent. There was a sentence in there that caught my attention because it's something that I have always said about my dad. And you said, he's my best friend. I, I, yeah. I have not run across a lot of men our age or in that age bracket where I see them admit that their dad was their best friend. I think it's beautiful. I think he he obviously brought you into sports, but there's so much more there, whether it's your education, whether it's your your ability, I think, Bill, as an educator and the way you find talent and the way you teach and the way you're bringing people into the ringer and the way you have kind of passed things down. I, I think that is the essence of, of Bill Simmons that not a lot of people understand. Am I... Well, thank you. And, and and I think it's it's so I don't want to say it's rare, but the picture that you have in there of of your arm around your dad at I don't know what it is a Super Bowl I guess it is is no you you know what Super Bowl that was that was the Giants the oh seven oh the the nineteen and O game oh my god my dad it was it was his sixtieth birthday and for his present we went to the Super Bowl. And we were going to watch the Pats go 19 and 0. <laughs> so we took that picture right before the uh, the drive that had the Tyree catch. I remember that one. I was there. <laughs> you you did that game. I did right? that game. Yeah. Yeah, because I was there. I ne- I've never watched it since. That's one of the few games that I uh, I don't think I've I've put on. I just since that happened. I just love the reverence you have for your father's career, and and I wonder that as you compare yourself, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but as you compare yourself to your dad, I feel like the way you think and the way you talk about your dad, I feel like you 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 hold him up like, man, this is a guy who worked his ass off. This is a guy who who gave everything he had every day, and and I would I well, would imagine that drives you to do all these different things that you're doing. So. When I wrote that column, it was 2009, and at that point, you know, I was I was having a lot of success um, with the at ESPN with the column. We had 30 for 30 coming up and all that stuff, and I just thought it was interesting because I didn't feel like I was any different than I was 
13 years before when I'm just like a bartender and I have no idea what I'm gonna do with my life. And, uh, and I, the stuff that happened with my dad, where he put that many years into the same school system and really had an effect on these people in this town, East of Massachusetts. And he meant a lot to this one place and that was it. But that, to me, that mattered as much as the stuff I was doing. And, uh, you know, I think, I think going forward from 09 on, um, especially with the 30 for 30 experience I had, when you're writing stuff, you're by yourself and it sucks. And I think that's the number one reason people don't like writing. It's a whole process. It starts, you, you turn your computer on, you're staring at an empty Microsoft Word document or whatever you're writing on and you're just, you got to do it. And it's just you. And I think the 30 for 30 experience I had where we, it was so collaborative and it was me and Connor Shell who now runs ESPN. And we really, it was the two of us figured out that whole series over like a 10 month span. Everyone left us alone. And then we added other people to our team who we were able to do it. And some of the people that were on that team have gone on to do really cool stuff. Like Dan Silver's running uh, one of the divisions for Disney plus Libby Geist, who is on our team. She uh, she runs ESPN Films now. Yeah, yeah. I just interviewed and, Willie and Libby because I have a podcast with my yeah, sister. Yeah, yeah. My, my sister. We did Libby and Willie. Libby's awesome. Yeah, Libby's great. Yeah. So, just the whole that whole thing made me made me think. All right, this this was cool. How do I do this with? Could I do this with a website? What is the website I've always wanted to read? And could we find young talent? And that's been something that the last ten years has. I've really taken a lot of uh, satisfaction over like finding people that I thought were good or young people that had a chance um, now with the, on the ringer side now, cause I have such a good inner circle. Now we can bring young people into that and really, really if, if it's somebody who's talented and driven, we can really push them up a level. I feel like, and that, that took like about a decade to figure out. So, you know, I, I, I think if you can, if you if you're ending your career and you can look back and think that you pushed a lot of people in the right direction, however many people that was, that's probably the best thing you can do. The other stuff is like that's going to come and go, mm-hmm. you know. But if you've affected somebody else's life, not to sound all sappy, but that that's always going to last longer than some column. Yeah, you right? built mm-hmm. something like your father built something and wanted to see it to its finish and and you know i I, and and you know not to be corny too but you know you you list his top two things that he built i would say uh i would say built you too and and you're you're shooting off this branch of of his tree and now building something of your own i I just think it's a beautiful story do you have a do you have a strong work ethic are you like uh are you a big put your nose to the grindstone guy. I do have a good work ethic. The funny thing is I didn't in the past. Mm-hmm. And I always look back at. I'm still trying to like find mine. School. I'm still trying to figure out. I, well, it, I was a late bloomer yeah. with that stuff, but in high school and college, like I wish I had the work ethic back then that, that I ended up developing. I, mine came out of necessity just cause like when I was on my own in the nineties trying to, write a sports column that people would read. It was like, I just had to work harder than everybody else. It was the only way I was going to get seen and, uh, and read and passed around. So I think once I got in the groove of working that hard, it, it kind of carried over, mm-hmm. but I do wish that I do wish that I have uh, 
I had had that early. Mm-hmm. When do you want to hear my top my top two Goldie Hawn movies? Do you want that at the tail end no, of the podcast? No, I, I want it right now. Let me guess. Uh, seems like old times. Oh, is that the consensus one? What? Because <laughs> that's that's, that's one easily che- my favorite one. I don't. I didn't feel like that was the one she was the most known for. That's though. the one with Chevy Chevy Chase. No, I know yeah. that's my favorite oh, one. It's the greatest. Yeah, that's my. Okay, so people people know that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What are what are your favorites? Well, I would have thought the the biggest one she did. That's not one of the biggest ones. No, 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 right? no, 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 no. Not the biggest. No. 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 Seems like old times is the best one. Oh, it's great with Charles Grodin, Chevy Chase. Phenomenal. It's amazing. It's really Phenom- amazing. I've been watching um a lot of like late seventies, eighties stuff with my kids because they've yeah. seen every movie now. Yeah. So we've been going back to like just one of the guys and Secret <laughs> oh, Admirer and like. Oh and, uh, my can't buy me, God! Can't buy me love. Wait a minute, Breakfast that, Club, just, all that shit. Just one of the guys. That was phenomenal. How about when he, she, like takes her top off? I mean, that's some real stuff. Nudity that's going on. Nudity as a plot device. Oh yeah, uh, it was amazing. <laughs> oh, and can't buy me but, love. It's classic. Well, the funny thing about those movies is the movies that they love now. The ones that basically Netflix has now mastered this new form of teen movie that they just keep releasing over and over again with mm-hmm. all the boys I love before all those. They're all ripped off from the movies that we grew up with. For sure. All of them. For sure. They're all the same plots, the same kind of love triangles, the same, I need a date for the prom, yeah. and I'm going to ask this guy, we're going to lie to everybody, but we're actually going to fall in love. Yeah, it, It's all in the 80s. It all happened already. Oh, yeah. Well, now they're making these movies that um, are really well done, but they're in the kids' genre. There's one my my daughter was watching last night i think it was called stardust or something like that and my wife and i were it was on and we were cooking or whatever having a glass of wine and we got into it because it was really well done very well acted you know they're these like young teen sort of movies that are you know actually very good now that that yeah they have there's been genres right like the late 90s there was horror teen mm-hmm. movies and it was like six years of Teens at heart starts with scream. It goes all the way through, so it yep. comes in waves. Yep. yep. And I think I think we're actually in a good wave right now because the Netflix algorithm was studying all the traffic to all their movies, and they're like, "Wow, people love teen movies." Yeah. And they just started making them over and over again. Oh yeah. So now we're in good shape. And horror. I mean, horror will never die. Thriller horror will never, never ever, ever go away. It, you know for sure. You know how many people are writing quarantine movies right now in every genre. You know, oh my god! Oh, there's probably quarantine rom com, quarantine action adventure, thriller, all of it. You know, all of it. I guarantee these writers who are sitting at home have written. Uh, there's a million of these scripts. Can I give you my best daddy issues movie of all time? Yeah, Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, great! That, see, that's what I think. The that's what I think. Marriage Story wishes it was personally. A Kramer versus Kramer, better movie. Oh, like not, oh. not arguable. Oh, without a doubt for me, Kramer versus not Kramer arguable. is the. That is the movie. I, I, we were just talking about this the other day. I, I think of all of Dustin Hoffman's movies, and there are three million of them. I, I think his work in that movie, that little kid, is fantastic. Obviously, Meryl Streep's Meryl Streep. Justin Henry. But, yeah. but, but just to just to see him, and now being a dad myself, uh, two times over. Uh, to see that and just him trying to make everything work and the, the playground scene and, and just being ripped and torn and work and home and 
my God, it it is it's got everything you want. And if that doesn't make you just I, I'm a puddle at the end of that movie, no matter how many times I've seen it. I'm an easy cry. I cried America's Got Talent, but yeah, that that is a, that is one that just <laughs> crushes me. That's a great that's yeah. a great that's a great movie. I thought I thought Bill's was was gonna say Big Daddy with Sandler. I thought that was gonna be his <laughs> <laughs> No, that would be a good one though. That's a good one. <laughs> well, the other one, the one that's Really, really deep daddy issues is Magnolia. Oh, oh. God. That goes into some oh, deep ass dad God, son stuff. Does it ever? And, and then Cruz, like, it kind of, it's almost like the new Affleck movie where he's playing the alcoholic basketball coach, but it's tapping into real life Affleck stuff. The Cruz stuff in that movie is all starts crossing over because he had a really not great relationship with his dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it yeah. all comes out in that hospital scene. Dude, so. that was... Tough one. I just watched that that scene. That's funny you even bring that up. I just watched that scene like three two weeks two weeks ago. It is gnarly. The Champ. Champ was another oh, one. The Champ. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Champ! Rich Champ! Wake up, Champ! Wake up, Champ! <laughs> and he's dead, right? Is it, isn't it John yeah, Voight dead. and Ricky Schroeder? That's right. And he's dead. Yeah, that that's another that kind of ends with a thud. I that's the thing that I never got as a kid. I loved all the John Hughes movies, but as a kid, I I actually really got along well with my mom and got along great with my dad and I had this kind of in some ways idyllic childhood going to all these games and all these different cities and I'd watch these John Hughes movies where there was so much like angst and miscommunication and just so many tears about parents and kids don't parents don't understand was, and all that stuff. I, I love the, the movies, good, was but the I divorce didn't get good? it. Was the divorce was was you were you cool with your family? Was it was it a good one? You know the back and forth and all that, Bill, or was it like tumultuous? oh mine? Yeah, was well, Kramer versus Kramer came out right like when I was living with my dad in Boston. Uh-huh. My mom was in Connecticut, and they used to they used to uh, every other week I would see. My, every other weekend, I would see my mom. So they would meet at the halfway point between where my mom lived in Connecticut, where my dad lived in Boston, mm. and and kind of exchange me. <laughs> and then um, as I got older, I could take Amtrak and things like that. But it was it was always it was always pretty cordial. But then when by the time I got to college, it was really cordial. They'd both remarried, and uh, and they all four of my parents would come for my birthdays to go like have dinner, and everyone in my on my floor thought it was super weird. <laughs> it was like Bill's Bill's four parents are here. I think they thought it was like it was uh it everyone thought it was weird that they got along, but they just kinda did And the step parents are cool. Everyone everyone was like yeah, one big happy family. That's great. Everyone was all right. That's great. Yeah, yeah Kurt you know, so. Kurt came into my life when I was about six years old, you know. Um and it was uh it was uh, it saved my life, really. You know, he he made me the man that I am today uh, my dad was around you know until i was around 11 or 12 things were good you know the back and forth was really good and uh, and our relationship was solid and then it just took a fucking hard left i don't know what happened i mean we're in texting communication now um yeah after this crazy situation that went down when i text when i i instagrammed as a fucking dark joke my sense of humor i it was a picture of myself and my sister in better times with our arms around our father. And it was on Father's Day, and I, 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 I captioned it, Happy Abandonment Day. And Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, I thought I was being funny, and then it just 
blew up, it blew up, especially because of my sister and who, you know, her fame. And it was, it was just, it took on a life of its own. Long story short, it ended up with us sort of communicating, having lunch, having a few lunches, getting drunk together. And it's created this sort of text relationship right now. So, we're, oh, that's good. We're, we're we're trying, you know, we're trying, but it's it's been better than it's ever been. Be honest, you know? uh, Oliver. Be honest. You were just happy it got you on Entertainment Tonight. Yeah, kind of. Did that happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw oh, it on wow. Entertainment Tonight. Every I, every outlet had Oliver Hudson I, with this plea right. for I help. Well, let's be clear. I did not go on Entertainment Tonight to talk about this shit. <laughs> right, right, right. They just they no, did a segment on no, it. No, 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 not at all, you know. But um yeah, you know, so um, then Kurt came in and, and and you know, brought us to Colorado, you know, taught me how to hunt, taught me how to fish, taught me how to ride motorcycles. And um, you know, so my stepdad situation was just uh, crucial for me, you know. So, I um you know, I have a lot of guests on podcasts, a lot of famous people. Yeah. And Kurt came on to, to promote Fast 8 whenever that came out. Mm. And it was like 10.30 in the morning at a podcast. And usually people show up and they have like three people with them. Yeah. Like they have like their <laughs> PR person or whatever. He showed up by himself, which I loved. <laughs> he looked exactly like I wanted Kurt Russell to look. Like he had like a leather jacket on. He had just smoked a Marlboro Red. Yeah. Um, came in. He was like, what are we talking about? Uh, we just did the whole thing for an hour and a half. Yeah. He was such a cool fucking guy. Yeah. It was, he left and we were like, wow, Kurt Russell, cool guy. Like that was he, he, the immediate he, reaction. He, we talk about authenticity. I mean, there is no yeah. one more authentic than Kurt Russell. I mean, hands down, you know, I, I try to emulate that. You know, we talk about what we look, what we try to sort of be of our fathers and maybe things that we don't want to be. He is my stepdad, yes, but he has this true, and you were talking about it about your life, this true not give a shit attitude, which is why he is so successful. He, he, he doesn't care what people think about him. And, no. and that is the ultimate fucking freedom. And I strive for that every day. Just that attitude of like, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to do this scene and I might be fucking horrible, but I'm going to try it the way I want to. And if it sucks, great. We'll do it again. You know, it's not, it's, it's just this true, he's true, has this true sense of self-worth that is just phenomenal. And Bill, you know? well, Bill, he, I know that you've, you had all those back and forth with ESPN. I'm not going to go through all that, but I feel like you're at a free time in your life. You've had tremendous success. You've, you've earned that success. You've built that success, but I feel like you're giving even more and, and, and would have a tough time going back under the roof in a corporate structure. I feel like you're, you're willing now to say and be whoever you are that day in that minute. Well, so we got bought by Spotify like five weeks ago. Congrats, and dude, by the way, one of the, one of the things I was really nervous about was being in a giant corporation like that again, but Spotify is just a lot different in a lot of different ways. The ESPN thing was weird because, you know, and by the way, I was not blameless with some of the stuff that happened, but you just have a lot of middle management and you just have a lot of management period. And the more bosses and people with competing agendas that you have, the, the dicier it can get for people. I, I think I never thought I wanted to work for a big company again. And looking at the Spotify thing from every angle, one of the things I liked was like, I knew exactly who the bosses were going to be and what the objective was. And more importantly, 
the guy who runs Spotify is a genius and it's actually his company and it belongs to him. Whereas ESPN wasn't anybody's company. It belonged to, you know, Disney, but there wasn't one person that ran it. So yeah, I was, I was a little nervous about the thought of working for a company like that again, just because the ESPN experience, but I also think the ESPN experience was pretty different. Even Joe at Fox, like ultimately it's Rupert's company. Right. And, and he, he was the one that built it and created it. It's his call. ESPN was never really like that. It always belonged to a bunch of different people. So well, it's funny. Sometimes you, it's, that gets dicey. it's funny you say that though, because when Joe and I were you know talking about doing a podcast together, you know, just because we wanted to have a good time and talk about a few things, I was I was like, well, I don't want to do this with you having to sort of hold back because you do work for Fox. There are certain things that we probably can't say or you can reveal about yourself or really be truly candid. You know, but Joe says, you know, so far we've talked it's about just, the side. It's just never been that way. And my wife's at ESPN and I'm thankful for that. And she's happy there, but it's an entirely different company. It is, it, and, and that comes from the people that started Fox Sports, who reported directly to Rupert, David Hill, Ed Gorin, and it, it felt like family. And if you fucked up and if they, if you did something they didn't like, they'd come right to you, but you, you, you handled it and then you, you know, I don't even I can't even act like we had any issues that way but you knew they were on your side they were invested in you and therefore you became invested in the network and people don't leave there for a reason because you feel like everybody's so got you, each other's do back you, do you think you can say anything on this show anything you want or are, th- are there things that you cannot say I I think there are things that I wouldn't say no matter who I worked for. I think there are things that that some things need to remain just like you what? or your family. <laughs> like what? No, Joe's Joe's in a good spot right now because him, Al Michaels, and Nance, but there's four football networks. So he's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's Joe's always gonna have a suitor. That's yeah, what well, I said we'll to him. I was like, You're not gonna get fired. You can talk about anything Joe's, you want. Yeah. Joe's you know? great. Joe's nah. in great, great. I'm buying Joe stock. Yeah, yeah me too, <laughs> man. Me too. Well, you just made me buy Spotify, so I'll I'll jump in on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good. Hey, Bill. Bill, do you do you consider yourself a great father? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I think I'm a really good father. I, I think the biggest thing with being a father is just making sure you're there, even even if you're busy. Um, I I try to go to all my kids' games, especially my daughter's. A, she plays club soccer and has a lot of different stuff. And I would always try to fix my schedule to make sure that, uh, you know, I could be there and, and go to different things that they do. Like they, they're both do music stuff Mm -hmm. and try to be there for the concert, stuff like that. Um, I think that's the kind of stuff you remember. Like I, even I remember like in sixth grade, I was playing little league and, uh, and, I was living with my dad. My dad just couldn't get home until 6.30. I'd play these Little League games that have no parents in the stands. Mm. And, like, you remember that shit. Hell and, yeah. Um, I, I think just kind of being there day after day with your kids. The funny thing now is your kids hit a point where they don't even want to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> so the, the corona lockdown has really reinvigorated <laughs> some parent-child relationships. I feel like I've hung out with my daughter more in the last three weeks than I have probably in the six months before because she has no other choice. There's only three other live bodies. Oh, dude, totally. My, my son is 12 and he's starting to go through puberty and he's just being, in these last two weeks, he's just being a dick. 
he's just being oh yeah he's just being a dick i'm like well his name is wilder i'm like what is wrong what's going on with you dude why are you saying no to everything i'm saying why are you being such a dick right now you know, and by the way, this sounds like my son. That's how I my talk to my kids. The same by thing. the way, I talk to them yeah. like that. I, I don't really hold much. We did too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't. I, I think I think we are living in a in a in a coddled society right now. I think there's actually a great book called The Coddling of America because I, I think that it's too it's a little too touchy feely for me. It's how do you feel? Uh, no, it's not how you feel. You're being a dick right now, and you don't know how you feel. Yes. You have a sense of how you feel, sure, but you need a little bit of sort of discipline at this point in your life, you know. So, you know, I'm I'm in that moment right now with him where he's he's a great kid and so sweet and loving, but he's going through this fucking thing, you know. Twelve year old boys are twelve year old boys are dicks. Yes, yeah, dick. <laughs> we, my nickname for my son is the biggest dick in the world because that's what he is. He's just a huge dick. Um, but I do think the coddling thing. I think that's why sports and arts are still so important because in sports you're there there is no coddling. You're you're either gonna win or you're gonna lose. Mm-hmm. If you're on a team, you're gonna play because you're good or you're not gonna play. And that's it. And kids kids learn how to accept failure. They learn how to accept how to be a good teammate, how to show up week after week for practice and stuff like that. And yep. uh, I think youth sports is more important than it's ever been. Uh, I couldn't agree more, man. I think that our kids are not learning how to fail anymore. It, it's such a problem. You know, how do you, how do you move into the adult place? How do you, how do you become an adult? How do you move into your workplace without knowing what it's like to fail? Well, also parents are afraid. Parents are afraid that their kids are going to fail, which is a whole other thing. And, mm-hmm. Your kids aren't going to learn anything unless they fail a couple of times. Well, I, I have, have you, that. You know, I have that fight with my wife now because she's more touchy feely, and I've already raised two girls, twenty three and twenty. I've got twin boys that are almost two, and I, I'm like, look, do you want them to hear no from you, or for the first time hear it at school, or for the first time hear it? We have got to be willing to say no mean it, stick to it. You don't get your binky. You don't get this. You don't get, you're going to, I don't care how old you are, structure, and they're constantly pushing. I mean, one of my kids today was being a little asshole, and I I, I had to say, you know, Michelle, just, just get out of the room. And, and I had to tell him, no, we're not going to do that. You're going to sit over here. And he's freaking out, but they push even at a young age. They want to know their boundaries, and it's okay to set them, and it's okay But I think that- they... I think they unconsciously they crave that. They crave the structure. They need the structure. Yeah. You know, if they can't vocalize it, they're not cognitive enough. But I think my and this is just my own opinion, but I think that kids need that. They want that. They want some sort of structure otherwise they don't know where to go. There's no there's no there's no place to push up against. They have to have that, you know. You just got to ask, what would Kurt Russell do? And whatever he would do, that's probably the right answer. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like, like Belichick. <clears throat> what would Belichick do? What would Kurt Russell do? Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick Kurt Russell story that really changed my life, and I think, I think you'll like this. So I was a mama's boy big time. Dad was not in the picture. Mom had boyfriends here and there. I was just, you know, I didn't know who I was, and I was attached to her. I would hear these words when Kurt and my mother got together. Independent and dependent. Okay, I, I didn't know what they meant, but I knew that 
being independent was better than being dependent. I was probably six or seven at the time. He lived in Colorado. He had a house there since 1977. He took us there. And this is where my life sort of transformed, being in the mountains. We had these ATCs, and uh, we went down to the river, which was about a mile away. And we get down to the river from the house, mile away from the house, and he just disappears out of, I, he, out of thin air. I don't know where the fuck he is. And I am looking around, and I, I would call him Pa. Uh, we didn't call him Dad. We didn't call him Kurt. We call him Pa. And I was like, Pa? Pa? Where are you, Pa? Screaming. And I, I will never forget it. It's those, that flashbulb memory of like, you know, I remember what I was looking at. It was just, it's so seared into my, my mind. And he was sitting behind a tree watching me panic and letting me panic. He gave me about five minutes of pure sheer panic. He came out, calmed me down. Oliver, Ollie, hey, relax. I'm right here. I got my wits about me, and he goes, I want you to take us home. And I was like, hell no. I'm, I, I need to be behind you so I can see you, so I know that you're not going to leave me, you know? And he convinced me not to, to, to get us home. And he was behind me the whole time, and I would look back, and I would look back to make sure he was there. We get home about a mile away. And he goes, see, you got us home here. I was following you, but you know how to get home, you know? If, if I was gone, if I was truly lost— you can just go home. This fucking light bulb went off in my mind. And it was a transition for me to the point where the next day, my parents were having coffee on the porch that overlooked sort of the driveway. And I flew down the driveway in my own ATC. And I said, Mom, Pa, look, I'm independent. Not really understanding what it meant, just knowing that it was a, a positive word. And I was off. I took off and I was on my own. I was able to sort of be free because, you know, figuratively and even sort of emotionally, I knew how to get home, you know. So that's a Kurt Russell story. That's how he raised me, you know, and that's how I, I try to raise my kids, honestly. Joe, did Ollie just cut the trailer for Daddy Issues? I think he did, and he also... <laughs> I think that was it, right? I listened to that entire thing, and, and as we got to the end, I started getting pissed at my dad. Like, what the, f- <laughs> what the fuck, Dad? I, he didn't ever... I, I didn't have any lessons like that. I mean, he could have been eaten <laughs> by a bear. Buddy. He could have, you know, whatever, flipped the whatever the hell he was driving around on, ATV, ATC, whatever the hell you called it. And look at you. Now look at you, Oliver Hudson. Look what you've <laughs> hey, good one. Hey, Bill, before, do you have any issues with you know, like parenting between your wife and, and you? I mean, like, do you guys do it differently to where it has, there has to be a compromise of sorts? No, we're pretty aligned. Yeah. I mean, She's she's the LeBron of the family. I'm I'm not even Anthony Davis. I'm probably more like Danny Green. <laughs> I'm, I can hit some corner threes and and guard the other team's best perimeter guy. That's about it. So uh, I just kind of fall in line with her. She calls the shots. She does. <laughs> well, I I can say Good this. Um, we could not have come up with uh, a better first guest for mm-hmm. our podcast. Oh, thanks, and, Joe Buck. And, yeah, uh, dude, this is... I'm glad that you and I, Bill Simmons, have you know come full circle. We're now we're kind of yeah. uh, reading out of the same hymnal, singing out of the same hymnal, and uh, I appreciate what you do. And I know more mm-hmm. about you now doing the research, none of which we got into during this podcast. But uh, good on you, man. You've you've done a hell of a job. What re- this... what 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 research? What what were you? What Jeez. were you? Do you see to what I'm? About? Do you see what I'm dealing with here, Bill? Going forward, 
I have packets. Look, that of sounded in- like some Edward Snowden shit. Yeah. You got, uh, <laughs> dude, Joe, I'm the color man. I'm Romo. I just made the 17 million. Yeah. You, you 18. Do- so, 18. 18. Sorry. So the most important part of this podcast is people will now go to see Seems Like Old Times and Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> and, and just one of the guys. If we live oh, with yeah. those three, that's how By the way, what, so what about foul play? You I was going to say, play? how is it not foul play? You've got an that's albino. A great, that's a great movie. No. You've got a little person. Uh, no, that's not that's not number two for you me. You got Dudley Moore. You got Dudley Chubby, Moore. Got, come on, yeah. No, I've I got seems like old times one, and I have shampoo number two. Dude, shampoo is that's shampoo's amazing. I just movie. watched shampoo two months ago. That that movie is kind of weirdly timeless, and it it's a great L.A. movie. Yeah, it's there's a there's very few like awesome L.A. get to see different parts of the city all in the same movie kind of movies. Mm-hmm. And that's like the perfect one for the mid seventies. Yeah, Heaven yeah. Can Wait's another good one where it's like Heaven Can Wait has a lot of good LA in it. It's it got does. some good Malibu and yeah, um, that would be oh, that should be your spinoff podcast series: LA scenery movies. <laughs> <laughs> he's got enough podcasts for God's sake. Yeah, that'd be he's that. like you, except it's one man band. Yeah. You, you employ people. Yeah. It's just Oliver and then various family members and friends doing. I podcasts. just, I, I, it doesn't get better than this. I mean, just talking to people who you're interested in and just fucking no makeup and you know, I, I, I love it so much. It's fun. It's really fun. Well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, buddy. We really appreciate. It. I, have, I, I have one more question about the dad thing that I yeah. think we're gonna. Tr- we're, 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 again, you're the guinea pig, but I, I just wanted to try to ask this question, to even all of our guests. But when you look at your father, right? Yeah. What What is? It's a sort of a two parter, right? What is the? What is that thing that you sort of inherited from him that you were so grateful for? And then what is the thing that you wish you could do without? Do without? Yeah. Uh, the thing. The best thing inherited, I, I would say, too, sense of humor and loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, the one I would do without, um, he's way more cautious than I am. Mm-hmm. So and I, I've kind of learned to to sometimes not listen to that part of my DNA. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I'm more like my mom in that respect, where my mom's a little little crazy. And do you take that into your parenting with with your kids? I mean, do you, are you conscious of how you grew up, or are you just are are you just pure feel? You know, or or do you do you do you look at that and say, I don't want to I don't want to instill that into my kids. The big thing I've probably learned as a parent is let your kids be who they are. Don't try to change it, and kind of whichever direction they're going, just kind of reinforce that direction versus trying to change it like my i think all little boys are pretty weird until they hit about age six every everybody who's had a little boy until they hit six is always deep down you're like wow is there something wrong with them what a weirdo (laughs) and then then they hit like six and a half seven and they start to become normal and i think the best thing with especially little boys is like ride it out they're just gonna be weirdos (laughs) and they're gonna do weird things and and don't hold it against them, and they're going to figure it out eventually. And if they don't figure it out by like age fifteen, you might have a problem. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. I I think like you can kind of tell what your kid's going to be like. Like Joe said, he has two two year olds. You kind of know by age two a little bit of where what direction each of them are going to. Know. Mm-hmm. You can tell who the who the thoughtful one is. You can tell who the crazy one is. Mm-hmm. You can tell who the fearless one is. Whatever. Whatever traits they end up having when they get older, they're going to be there when they're two. 
my son was completely fearless at age one and a half. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's just one of those guys who would jump off the deck onto the beach 10 feet down. And um, is he like that now? Still? Yeah. Yeah. He's like that now. So you got to channel that. Now he's trying to get into skateboarding. And dude, my kids skateboarding, they're obsessed with skateboarding right now. Right. So and I'm scared because he's fearless. But at some point you got to let him do it. See, It's so funny. I'm the opposite. My first kid, Wilder, who's the again, the most uh, my my second kid, his name is Bodie. He's more fearless. My second my first one. He's got this. He's very, very cautious, but extremely talented, extremely athletic. Never got into organized sports. I didn't want to push him, even though I, I wanted to. He was a great ball player, great baseball player. And I was like, fuck, dude, just do it. Didn't want to do it. Now he's super cautious. He's skating. But I want to push him more. And I find myself getting angry that he is so cautious because I know what he can accomplish if he just fucking gets over it. But when I analyze right. myself... I realized that I'm pretty much yelling at my own at myself when I was fucking 12 years old, you know, from a psychological right. standpoint, because I was pretty much him, at, you know. So it's 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 this it's crazy, but I, I do I wish he could just break out of that a little bit and be a little more. Yeah, your kid, yeah. your kids are half you. I'm positive. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just take him, for, take him to a river sure. on an ATV and leave him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see if he can find yeah. his way back to California. <laughs> Uh, well, Bill, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate this. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.